Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Medical College of Wisconsin's Coffee Conversations with Scientists, where each month MCW brings you the science behind the health topics you're hearing about in the news. The series is brought to you by the Advancing a Healthy Wisconsin Endowment, a statewide nonprofit that is working to improve health and advance health equity in Wisconsin. I am David, Dr. David Nelson, Associate Professor of Family and Community Medicine at MCW and your host today. I'm thrilled to be here to talk to Dr. B. Tucker Woodson, an otolaryngologist and professor and chief in the Division of Sleep Medicine at the Medical College of Wisconsin about the science behind sleep health. Dr. Woodson is a physician researcher who received his medical degree from the University of Missouri School of Medicine in Columbia, Missouri. He completed his residency in otolaryngology at Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit, Michigan. Dr. Woodson has dual certification in otolaryngology, head and neck surgery, and sleep medicine. He is nationally and internationally recognized expert in obstructive sleep apnea syndrome. He has lectured worldwide on issues related to surgery and sleep medicine. Dr. Woodson, welcome to Coffee Conversations. Thank you very much, Dr. Nielsen. Great to be here on this you know, we're gonna morning. Co- we're going to cover a great list of questions today re- regarding the science behind obstructive sleep apnea, snoring, and sleep health in general. Anybody who's watching, drop questions that you have on the topics. We'll be getting to as many of those as possible. So let's get started today. Dr. Woodson, give us a little bit about who you are and your background. Well, as, I, as you mentioned, I'm a head and neck surgeon, you know, by training initially, uh, but got very involved in my training in Detroit uh, in the treatment of sleep apnea, and that expanded into other sleep disorders. Uh, so we helped. Uh, uh, so that got me started initially in doing uh, uh, sleep research and then spending many, many nights uh, awake all night uh, studying people's airways and, and studying how to sleep and it's expanded since then. A lot of the work we've done has uh, been directed at developing new treatments or improving existing treatments, but also just trying to understand the basic uh, uh, mechanisms and, and, and how sleep apnea works and, and how it affects us, particularly adults. I do mostly adults, but it affects uh, children uh, you know, as well. And it's expanded from there. We started the program here at the MCW and Freighter uh, uh, back in the 1990s. So we've developed actually a an accredited uh, sleep fellowship program. We trained a, a large number of doctors in that. That's been uh, exciting as you uh, get a chance to, to uh, uh, train people and you see the work that they do. So we've had the chance to actually train uh, other scientists and other people that have gone on to do great things uh, around uh, not only the US, but actually worldwide. We've actually had a large number of uh, doctors uh, internationally come here over the years. And it's just been really exciting. and. Uh, uh, I learn something new every day, uh, and uh, and that, that keeps us going. And and uh, it's also great to be a part of uh, helping to treat patients. And 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 it's just been a great experience here at MCW. Dr. Woodson, it's it's great to have you here. And we're learning more and more about the importance of sleep in in our general health. We talk about exercise. We talk about nutrition. And oftentimes, people. Uh, perhaps don't get enough sleep. Talk to us about how sleep fits into a healthy person's lifestyle. Well, you know, sleep is a complicated process. Uh, sleep 
you know, there's different states of, of being in a sense. Uh, we have actually three different states of being. We have wakefulness, which hopefully most of the people here are getting their coffee to help, you know, <laughs> stimulate a little bit of, of that wakefulness this morning. Uh, but then with sleep, there's actually two types of sleep. There's what we call non-REM sleep, non-rapid eye movement sleep, and then REM sleep. And those are actually three different physiologic states. And those uh, uh, are critically important to, to how we feel during the day and also many of our health and physiologic processes. So that it is this really what, like what you say, this kind of milking stool model of global health, where you have a three-legged stool that uh, is supporting our health. And that is, like you say, is diet's cr critically important, uh, you know, exercise and then and, and sleep. And, and we're learning more and more how these all integrate together into, into health and, and disease. Uh, it affects so many, many things. They do integrate together. In sleep medicine, we actually divide things into, into different types of disorders. There's about 100 different uh, uh, sleep disorders that are out there that are specifically sleep-related uh, 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 medical problems. And we kind of divide them into both intrinsic sleep disorders and extrinsic sleep disorders. So they could be things like uh, outside influences that affect the quality of our sleep that then affects our health. But then there are actually intrinsic disorders uh, such as insomnia, uh, which is a problem in usually initiating and falling asleep or staying asleep. Also, just general, the quality of sleep that we have. Then there are things like sleep apnea that a lot of my, my medical and my research has been involved with is in breathing disorders of sleep and things like restless legs. But then some of the fascinating things, we have parasomnias. Uh, years ago, I remember one of my uh, neurology colleagues re referring to these as the things that go bump in the night. Mm. You know, those are the sleepwalking, sleep talking, uh, the things like REM behavior disorders. But, you know, there's a long list of those. Some of those are fairly uncommon, fortunately. Uh, and uh, some of the movement disorders. Uh, and then just how other diseases are affected by sleep, things just general cardiovascular things we're seeing now in, in cardiac medicine, things like atrial fibrillation are affected a lot by intrinsic sleep disorders. Um, you know, ultimately the most common thing that, that affects sleep is uh, lack of sleep. We'll probably mm. talk about that as we, as we go along is that we live, you know, ever since Thomas Edison came around in a sleep deprived world, uh, the electric light bulb uh, was the, the, you know, a, a great uh, advance in, in civilization, but but kind of tough on sleep. Well, and, and there's also the, the, the cultural norm in America where you know it's it is this badge of honor to say to 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 get a to still be functioning in, in a high in a high state when you're not getting enough sleep. And my wife's a, a family physician, and so we've spent many a night where uh, the sleep gets disrupted for our colleagues who who are working nights or are working weekends and can't sleep. You know, what do you recommend? Let's just let's get into the health of it. What do you recommend for people about the, the types of sleep that they might need for good health? Well, for good health, I mean, a big part of it is, is, you know, there's two aspects to sleep. There's the duration of sleep and the intrinsic quality of sleep. And a lot of, you know, the focus in, in medicine has been on the quality of sleep issues, things like, let's say, restless legs, uh, insomnia and sleep apnea. But, you know, probably the, one of the, the other half of that equation is really the duration of sleep. And, and as you mentioned, uh, many people uh, live in a world where they, 
get inadequate sleep. And that's Mm -hmm. somewhat is deceiving because the brain requires sleep. Sleep is a, is a biological need. If you don't get sleep, if infected animals, if they're sleep deprived for an adequate duration in time, uh, they'll die. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll die. And uh, what happens oftentimes is they get physiologically stressed out. The immune system breaks down. Uh, the, the, the tight junction in, in the intestine will break down. They're susceptible to more infectious disease. And we've even seen that there are some uh, large studies out there in uh, sleep deprived populations. And those people will have, you know, more chronic disease, more risk of, of infection, uh, uh, it does affect global health. It's, it's more than just uh, some of the, the more modern medicine where we stick someone in a sleep lab and look for more specific diseases. Uh, the follows the, the, the deceiving part is our brain is very good at adapting. We, 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 the brain will actually slow down in response to being impaired. Mm. And so you think you're actually functioning at 100% <laughs> when in fact the brain is fooling you and you're actually not functioning at 100%. We're probably all familiar with those events with either, you know, raising children or needing to get our taxes in tomorrow right. and, and the deadlines coming in where we've really gone and we've gotten, you know, very, very little sleep, maybe two or three hours on a night. Sure. And we know the next day we're, we're just totally unable to function at any high level. But unfortunately, when we're actually then functioning at, at uh, uh, lesser amounts of sleep, let's say five or six hours of sleep. We think we're actually functioning at 100% when we're functioning at a far lesser level. The, the challenge in sleep science is actually being able to measure that uh, and mm-hmm. actually extrapolate that and, and communicate how it really does affect us. One of the exciting things, I think, for sleep going forward, and it's just really coming to bear now, is the advantage of just all this, uh, the mega data technologies that we have, the, the right. Fitbits of the world. I think, you know, in some ways... I'm coming from an era of sleep uh, where we studied it in a sleep lab. And I think there's a new era of sleep coming along. It's really going to revolutionize how we look at, at sleep uh, going forward. It's really kind of an exciting time, I think, over the next few decades. You know, let's let's tug on that because, um, you know, you hear about the, the, the apps that are available and even some of the beds that can measure the, the, the so-called the sleep how much do you put stock into things like that? And so how much should we trust that for, for the average person? You know, we're, we're really just learning of them. Some of them are really good. I use a lot of, you know, can breathing disorders, we'll use a, an app called, and I have no commercial interest in any sure. of these, by the, but uh, one is called the snore lab and it's actually really accurate in picking up snoring and okay. snoring is a pretty good surrogate for sleep apnea. Now by itself, snoring doesn't tell you I have sleep apnea, but if you the advantage of something like this is that you get not in a sleep lab or a medicine environment, probably frequently send them to the sleep lab for one night. And we extrapolate that, that information over someone's lifetime. And it, it, historically years ago, sometimes insurance companies would, would have a policy to say that someone could have one sleep study in a lifetime. It would only cover mm-hmm. it one, you get mm-hmm. one sleep study. And that was your sleep for the rest of your life was based right. on one night. And, and the advantage of some of these is you can get hundreds of nights. You can do this, you know, uh, over a long period of time. And I think that's the, the advantage of the things like the Fitbits and the sleep number adjustable beds. Uh, I'm not sure that the data that we, we get or the information is always is accurate. And I'll have sometimes people come in and they'll be worried about some of the, 
this fine details of what these apps are giving them. Sure. I wouldn't worry about the fine details. Uh, but I think some of the, if you look at it on average, that the information you're getting over a month's period of time or several weeks period of time is, is probably useful. Uh, it's, and we're also learning to, some of the ways we score sleep, some people worry about, do I get enough REM sleep? Do I get enough stage two sleep or, you know, these different apps that are out there and, and we can talk about the details of sleep or not, you know, later, but historically we classified sleep based on doing what we call paper recording of sleep. So we would actually, when I started in sleep medicine, we'd have these big polygraphs and big amplifier panels. And at the bottom of it, a huge pile of paper because there are ink pens. In fact, one of the jobs of our sleep techs was to make sure the pens didn't get frost and the ink wells would get filled up with ink and, and the paper didn't get, get caught up in the, in the rollers. And, and a sleep study was this huge pile of paper sure. and we would, we would go through and, and to be able to score them, we had to have a, a way to do it. And we called it manual scoring. And, you know, it was a, it was a great advance in some ways, but it was very crude. And, and now we have uh, many other ways to really look at the intrinsic natures of sleep. And I'm not sure that necessarily some of the manual scoring where we kind of right. look at light sleep and deep sleep, th those may change. And in some of these Newer technologies may help us uh, change how we, we, we look at, at sleep going forward. And I've always been fascinated. Just, you know, I, I study breathing, but I've always been fascinated by sleep. It, it's, uh, it's, it is a, a fascinating process that we still don't know why we sleep. We know it's a biological need, but honestly, th there's all sorts of theories of why we sleep. You know, everything from, uh, I think part of it is, is it has to do with just, uh, you know, simple uh, having certain micro environments where we could live. There were nocturnal animals and there are right. diurnal animals. And, uh, and, and so if you were a diurnal animal and were active during the day, you wanted to be quiet at night so that, so that the nocturnal animals didn't eat you or something. Didn't eat you, right. <laughs> and, uh, but there are other things too. There's memory involved when you go to sleep. Uh, there's all sorts of changes in your brain, neurons and synapses where there's synaptic pruning, which is involved in memory consolidation, uh, which is fascinating. Uh, but, you know, part of it's also physiologic rest. So other physiologic processes slow down and, and other me metabolism changes. So we really don't know why exactly we sleep, but, but, but if you don't sleep, it does affect how you feel and it affects your health. Dr. Woodson, I want to get into some of your expertise. And I, I was wondering if you could tell us just in, in everyday terms, just what is sleep apnea? Sleep apnea, apnea, I'll, I'll start at a, a go back a step. So apnea sure. is defined as a pause in breathing. Okay. And by, by just general definitions, we say it's about 10 seconds in adults which represents about two breathing cycles. That's why we actually use that. So in children, an apnea is two breathing cycles. But an apnea is first a pause in breathing. So even during wakefulness, if we held our breath for 10 seconds, that would be an apnea. Uh, that would, uh, obstructive apnea occurs when there's a blockage to the upper airway. And in humans, that blockage occurs in the throat, what we call the, the pharynx or the, the space between the nostrils and the voice box. Uh, a lot of that is actually soft tissue that's held open by muscles. And so when you go to sleep at night, those muscles will relax. And if you're, if that's anatomically small or structurally compromised for any reason, 
When those muscles during sleep relax, it blocks off and that causes an apnea. Uh, the, uh, the organism, in this case, the, the person that has apnea, the brain really likes to breathe a lot. That's really important. It's a, certainly an important process. <laughs> and so if you're not breathing well, uh, then uh, the brain recognizes that and then actually will, will wake you up, what we call an arousal. So this is not something you're behaviorally aware of, uh, but it's a, a, the brain will awaken for a few seconds so the muscles can reactivate. Uh, and then you breathe again. Uh, but unfortunately, in people that have obstructive apnea, the disease, it, the same process happens over and over. And as a result of that, the sleep is fragmented. So your quality of sleep is then poor. And so it's, uh, uh, so the sleep apnea will affect that. Then there's other processes depending on, on other, other uh, aspects of the sleep apnea, where if you have the apnea, then your oxygen level can drop. Uh, it can affect things like your blood pressure, your heart rate will go up. Uh, and so this, it's not just a matter of sleep fragmentation, but it affects uh, other uh, uh, physiologic and health processes as well. So sleep apnea is basically simply is the throat blocks off, uh, the body and the organism still trying to, to breathe, and then it, it disrupts sleep. Uh, so if a person, obviously in your sleep studies and, and in the laboratory, you can determine if someone has sleep apnea or obstructive sleep apnea. But what would you say for someone that if they, if they haven't made it to the point of seeing their physician about this, how could they discover that they have this going on for them? The most, the most common, I'd say that the highlighting symptom of sleep apnea uh, for the vast majority of people is snoring. Okay. So snoring basically represents just this. So when the airway uh, blocks off, uh, you're trying to continue to breathe. You're working harder to breathe. And as you make that effort uh, to breathe in, uh, the tissues will vibrate and flutter and make noise. And that's the noise of snoring. So almost everyone that has apnea, and there are rare exceptions uh, will snore. So snoring is usually a hallmark. Uh, oftentimes the people that will have apnea will have a, a longer history of snoring. Maybe they started snoring when they were younger or there's been some progression. In fact, Dr. Lugarese in Italy that initially described this disease back in the late 60s and 70s, he called it the progressive snorers disease. And uh, subsequently, one of his students, Christian Gimino, that went to Stanford, he renamed it uh, obstructive sleep apnea uh, but that one of the hallmarks to me is, and one of the things I'll look for in patients is this progression that the snoring gets worse, not only in amplitude, how loud it is, but it may go from where you snore only in certain body positions. Cause when you're on your back, the tissues tend to collapse more on your side, maybe less, but you'll also go from being positional to non-positional, but also maybe go from where you're, you're snoring just intermittently on an occasion to snoring more continuously through the night and more nights during the week. So you'll see this progression of snoring. Other things is that if others observe that you're not breathing during sleep, that's frequently one of the aspects we'll look medically saying, do you have observed apneas? Does somebody see that you're not breathing? Uh, that can be somewhat deceiving in the fact that sometimes we have partial obstructions to breathing that will disrupt sleep as well. Uh, mm -hmm. We don't call those apneas. We call them hypopneas. Hypo means, you know, less. So hypopneas or, or partial obstructions to breathing. Uh, those people tend to have more crescendo. So the snoring will get louder and then suddenly softer. So they'll go, mm. and then it gets worse and then it get quieter again, and then it'll get worse and then quiet. So those, those oscillations and snoring sounds can sometimes also be a sign of apnea. 
Um, so it doesn't have to be a complete cessation of, of breathing. Uh, and then daytime tiredness. So those are kind of the three pegs of, of, of sleep apnea. You look at people that say, geez, I, I got eight hours of sleep, but I still wake up feeling fatigued and tired. I have significant snoring and maybe people stop breathing. If you have all three of those things, you have a high likelihood of having apnea, especially as you get a little bit older or if they're associated risk factors such as obesity, being overweight. So how do I know somebody that might be listening, might be going, my gosh, I have sleep apnea. What do they do? Do they go to their primary care physician first? And then get, what do you, what do you tell us how we, what procedure? Absolutely. I mean, years ago when this especially first started, it was, you know, it, it was a small group of people diagnosing this. And fortunately now it is something that, you know, you know, really every physician is, is aware of. They may not actively, you know, treat people on, as much, but certainly in primary care, we, that's the, the majority of sleep medicine is now practiced by your primary doctors. They, they order the sleep studies uh, and uh, oftentimes initiate at least the, the initial uh, treatment regimen. So yes, the, the primary physician uh, generally will uh, uh, take the reins and, and do what's needed as the first steps. Mm-hmm. And so as in the sleep medicine world, frequently I'm seeing people uh, that uh, have have been seen before and then kind of coming in for more specialty uh, sort of evaluation. Although we see a lot of people primarily as well. It's, it's uh, so you can, you know, come straight into the sleep clinic, uh, but for many people, their primary physician is a great place to start. So everybody that's listening, go see your primary care physician and let's get back and let's get back <laughs> into the clinic. You know, and there said, are other things other than sleep apnea as well. So that's the other thing is that uh, we'll see people that, uh, uh, have issues with sleep. Probably the other most common thing people have is just insomnia, the problem in falling asleep and staying mm-hmm. asleep. And the thing with, you know, for my sleep fellows, I always tell them, I said that the number of no patient has one sleep disorder, right? Uh, it, it's, it's very common that people have multiple things that, that impact the quality of their sleep when they come in and see us. And so it's a matter of kind of identifying, which is not only just the most important or the primary, but also treating all those secondary uh, other sleep disorders as well. Uh, the insomnia, the sleep deprivation, maybe these other things. But I always tell people, my fellows that no, nobody has one sleep disorder. You know, I'm going to ask the question because it's on my mind and we'll get to a few questions in the chat as well. They're just pouring in. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about the role of caffeine and you mentioned obesity and I want you to go talk about those two, those two oh, things because we're a caffeinated society and, and frankly, we're an overweight society as well. Talk to us about caffeine first. So caffeine is a really potent uh, stimulant drug. Um, uh, I won't go into the mechanism. It's actually, it, it inhibits something called adenosine, which builds up in your brain. So as you're, as you're during, during wakefulness, you build up a chemical called adenosine during uh, during the day. And that actually contributes to the onset of sleepiness and the onset of sleep. And caffeine helps uh, negate the, the, uh, the effects of adenosine. And it's a really potent stimulant. Uh, but the thing about caffeine is that also you habituate to it very quickly. <laughs> uh, so for someone that's never had caffeine before, if I gave you a big, strong cup of Starbucks coffee or something, about 200 milligrams of coffee uh, or of caffeine, uh, uh, man, that would, you'd be pretty wired. Uh, but what happens with caffeine very quickly, you actually, your brain habituates to it. So it basically gets used to it. So, uh, so it has less effect. Uh, and uh, so people, all of people that come in and they say, well, I can drink a pot of coffee and go right to sleep. 
So they're habituated. And you oftentimes identify that because when you stop the coffee, you get the rebound withdrawal, which is oftentimes some headache and some, you know, you're, you're maybe a little bit ornery and, and, and your mood may change a little bit because you're not getting your, your morning coffee. And so uh, that's the issue with coffee. So I tell people, and especially our trainees or doctors, I tell them that if you're using coffee for the wakefulness effect, which is quite profound, is that use it strategically. So if you sure. enjoy your cup of coffee in the morning, maybe some decaf or some half and half is the way to go sure. uh, and save your, 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 your full bore, your, your full jolt for that time that you need it when you're, mm. you know, maybe you're needing a long, you know, doing some activity where you need to help maintain wakefulness. So uh, uh, caffeine is quite a, a strong drug. It, it has quite a significant impact, but uh, we do habituate to it. As far as obesity, it, it gets complicated. Obesity contributes to sleep apnea for sure. It, it's not a direct dep deposition so much of, of fat around the airway, although that's a part of the equation. Uh, it affects uh, things like lung volume as you gain weight, uh, that, that weight on your chest pushes against the diaphragm. So it just makes it much harder to breathe uh, in, in many different ways. But the other thing is, is fat is a very active tissue. Uh, mm -hmm. It is not just a deposition of calories. Right. It is a, it is a very active uh, uh, tissue and, it, and it's involved in the production of, you know, things like leptin and ghrelin and, and, and all sorts of inflammatory cytokines and many of these have major impacts on sleep and sleep quality. So if you just look at people who are overweight, even without sleep apnea, they sleep much more poorly than people mm. who are non-overweight. And it has to do with these other, uh, you know, inflammatory issues. So in a sense, being overweight creates this inflammatory setting for, for many disease processes, including sleep. Uh, um, and, uh, and, and, but it's also bi-directional. So then it really gets interesting because we see that, that people that are sleep deprived are at risk of increasing weight. So sleep, sleep deprivation is a risk factor for obesity. Sure. There's a whole group of people working now and understanding how being sleep deprived increases obesity, especially in children. In children, there's pretty strong data showing that inadequate sleep duration is a pretty significant risk factor for uh, obesity. Part of it's metabolic, so it affects your metabolic system. Uh, but part of it's also behavioral, that, uh, the, that when you're sleepy, it, you, you're somewhat disinhibited. Mm -hmm. And so then, you know, and, and so you then increases appetite. And it also tends to increase appetite, unfortunately, for the, the things that are worse for obesity, which is the high density carbohydrates, the high glycemic foods, you know, that's what people tend to crave when they're mm -hmm. sleep deprived. Uh, so getting adequate sleep is important as a part of, I think, the general treatment of obesity, honestly. So it goes a, both a, ways. Obesity gives you poor sleep, but poor sleep gives you obesity. It's yeah. really a fascinating uh, interaction. Well, it's, a, it's a part of that. We want to be active, but we also know as a, as a former athlete that rest was as important as, as being active. Dr. Woodson, I want to ask you um, about medications that either people might take, whether they be natural medications um, over the counter or something that might be prescribed. Can you tell us about the impact of medications like that on sleep and medications in general would be, would be, would be good to speak into. Uh, yeah, there's, a, I mean, 
Oh, you know, probably, you know, a large number of medications affect sleep uh, in so many different ways. As far as sedative hypnotics, uh, the, the pendulum keeps swinging back and forth on, on the use of, of different medications for sleep and, and sleep quality. The one thing I can say is we have lots of medicines that make sleep worse, mm. uh, but there isn't specifically a medicine that makes sleep quality better. Unfortunately, we don't have anything like that. And that's frequently a misperception in, in, in patients that come and see me. They say, isn't there something well, that I can take this and I'll wake up bright eyed and bushy tailed. <laughs> I can tell you there's a lot of things that will do the opposite, particularly things like alcohol. Mm -hmm. uh, that's probably the worst thing for sleep uh, that we have out there. Uh, but what we look at things that help decrease sleep latency, help people fall asleep more quickly. Uh, and those are generally best used on, on overall, generally short durations. Uh, we like to use other therapies, especially behavioral therapies, what we call cognitive behavioral therapies, mm -hmm. uh, for people that have chronic, uh, sleep problems and try to work on, on sleep quality on the behavioral aspects, because that's oftentimes what's triggering it. So this problem in sleep quality, they're usually factors that predispose. Unfortunately, there are people that are in a sense, what I always call is kind of gold medal sleepers. You know, the people that they're just, they have, they're just genetically good sleepers in a sense. Sure. And then there's those of us that sometimes aren't. And so you have a predisposition. There sometimes can be precipitating factors that, that say make uh, sleep worse. Maybe your NCAA bracket has just been, you know, decimated. <laughs> By the way, any any team I ever pick on my bracket is it, it, is a, a kiss of death, uh, unfortunately. But okay, your bracket didn't do well, and and now you you're you're not sleeping. So that's the precipitating event. And then we, but the thing people don't realize is that unfortunately, with a lot of sleep problems, we do behaviors that perpetuate it. We we act, but we, we don't do it intentionally. Obviously, you know, we think it's kind of like the if, you, if you're a golfer, you know, you're trying to fix your swing so you're not hitting it in the boonies someplace. But the harder you try, the worse it gets. And it's sometimes many times the same way with with sleep that many of what we try to do to compensate sometimes actually make it worse. So there's perpetuating factors. And actually, the behavioral therapies can be really effective in helping mm. people deal with both the precipitating and the perpetuating sure. factors. And, and those are usually better than, than medications. Uh, but there are different types of medications and certain ones are, you know, they're advertised or they're, they're uh, certainly available, but they're best for shorter durations. Uh, uh, you know, uh, you, you talked about the idea of all of the different aspects and I want to end on, on a, on a, on a high note. So, okay. We're talking to you as our sleep expert, give us some tips that we should be thinking about and practicing to get a good night's sleep. Well, you know, the, the one thing about sleep is, is that if you intentionally try to go to sleep for most people, uh, it, it makes it hard. So sleep, you know, in a sense, you have to allow yourself uh, time to sleep. So it's, it's kind of a process, uh, you know, for the vast majority of people, we don't have to, to worry about it. But when it starts to be a problem, in a sense, the harder you try, the worse it gets. So <laughs> you want to give yourself adequate duration of sleep. Um, you want to make sure your bedroom environment's, you know, quiet and comfortable, that it's not too hot or cold, that it's quiet. Uh, many times when people have problems with sleep, they've kind of associated the bedroom environment with, with, uh, unconsciously with bad sleep. So sometimes, you know, maybe getting a new comforter, some uh, fresh pillows, something like that is, is helpful. Kind of uh, uh, 
give yourself a new environment to, to kind of start over again, in a sense. Uh, if you don't, if you don't sleep, if you're not able to fall asleep adequately, uh, don't sit in bed tossing and turning. The harder you try, the worse it's going to get. Mm-hmm. Uh, the best thing is to break that habit is to, you know, get up and do something, you know, uh, quiet and peaceful for a while. I always, I tell my patients that I have a large number of of technical medical journals <laughs> that, that put me to sleep very quickly. And I'm, I'm more than happy to, uh, to loan them to people. Uh, but, uh, but to do, do that. And it doesn't have to be a long duration to kind sure. of break that, 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 that stress of falling asleep. Uh, also realize that uh, you're, you're even getting sleep, you know, as we get along, we're, you're many times getting sleep when you don't realize that we've learned that the brain is this complicated structure and, and the parts of the brain that may give you some sense of awareness uh, are different than other parts of your brain. So people will be in, let's say, stage one sleep or early stage two sleep and actually feel like they're awake, but they actually are getting some rest. So sometimes people come in and they're very distressed that they literally feel like they haven't slept in days. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they, they probably they have. Uh, but the brain can fool you in that way. So, so getting rest is important, you know, as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, a lot of the sleep problems of people get into the medical world is the primary care can do a lot to, to help you in that, both with uh, 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 biofeedback and cognitive behavioral therapies, but, uh, uh, and sometimes, you know, medication. But those are, I'd say the biggest thing is to allow you the time to sleep, uh, is probably the biggest issue right now in, in, uh, in the world. Um, uh, but those are the basics that I would do. You know, and I, I really love those, those, those simple things that most of us knew already. And uh, these are things that we just need to, to, to practice on a regular basis and put it as a part of good overall health to include sleep health. Dr. Woodson, I want to thank you for joining us today. We didn't get to all the questions and we're going to get these questions to you. So you might okay. answer those. And if others have yes. questions, drop us a drop us a question at conversations at mcw.edu. Dr. Woodson, do you want to leave us with a thought? Uh, boy, I love talking about sleep. I'd be happy to be back anytime and uh, uh, talk about a little bit more some of the airway research that we're doing at some point. But, uh, you know, I always I think sleep is is. It's just so fascinating. I, I love love sharing uh, uh, some of the background with people, and it's really been enjoyable. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you, sir. And thank you, everybody, for joining us. And we'll see you next time on Coffee Conversations with Scientists. The Medical College of Wisconsin's Coffee Conversations with Scientists is sponsored by the Advancing a Healthier Wisconsin Endowment. Coffee Conversations with Scientists occur monthly as Facebook Live events and are produced by the Medical College of Wisconsin. We hope you join us next month for another virtual coffee break and a conversation with a scientist.